This is a really great story um, about Jesus being asleep in the stern of the boat because if you've ever been in any sort of boating issue, uh, then it can be pretty terrifying. Uh, even if the sea is a little bit rocky, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. And uh, the fear that the disciples have is not irrational. Uh, it's, it's not uh, superficial. It's, it's real. Uh, Dean Limehouse uh, preached on the same text this morning, and it's not going to be like dueling sermons. Uh, but uh, I probably will repeat some of the things he said where he was right. Just kidding. It's a joke. Uh, but about uh, 20 years or so, they actually found the hole of a Galilean fishing vessel in the Sea of Galilee. And it dates back to the time of Jesus. And they pulled it up, and it's really not that big a boat. And the Sea of Galilee really is a huge lake. It's a big lake. But it's incredibly low elevation-wise. But it's surrounded by mountains that are incredibly high. And so when the dry air comes in from the top and it can hot air comes from the top from the wilderness down into the Sea of Galilee with the moist air, it causes these terrible storms that crop up. And so you can be out on the lake at any given time and all of a sudden, whoosh, deluge, deluge. And it's terrifying for these men. One, because fishermen, for the most part, don't know how to swim. So this boat is their only hope. It's their only ticket to get them across. And while they're bailing water, what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Are you for real? First of all, how could anybody possibly, A, sleep through this storm, and B, uh, not wait, do anything about it, if he has the power to do it? And yet here the disciples are bailing water out of the boat, And they wake Jesus up and say, look, enough's enough. We've got to get this guy on board. Uh, And Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind and the sea and says, peace, be still. And the wind ceases and there was a great calm. And he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Well, it sounds like Jesus is rebuking them. But can you blame the guys? What would you do in that situation? And all of us have been in situations in life where uh, we are terrified. And it doesn't help. You know, has anyone ever come up to you and said, hey, the issue that you're dealing with and that you're really afraid about, your fear is irrational. Right? That's helpful. Right? Are you, are you saying I'm irrational? Uh, it's really hard to tell somebody when they're in a situation that they have fear that they don't have fear because your experience says otherwise. Look, regardless of whether you think I should have fear or not, I'm fearful. I'm terrified, and I don't feel like there's any rescue, and all I feel like I can do is just bail water out of the boat and just hope and pray that somehow I can get to the other side. Do I not have enough faith? Maybe not. But don't tell me that that I shouldn't be afraid, that I shouldn't wonder how in the world I got myself in this situation, or especially more, how am I going to get myself out of this situation? And a lot of us have all asked that question, and some of us tonight may actually be dealing with something where we think, I'm afraid, and I'm just bailing water. Well, our friend Job, from the reading earlier, uh, has this, this is the tail end of Job, and so you're reading it, you're probably like, I have no idea what's going on here. Uh, But what it is, is Job finally gets an audience with God, and God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What were you up to when I 
laid the, the earth? Where, what were you up to when I made the seas and gave them their depth and told them where to go and where not to go? Do you know Job? Surely you know Job, since you think that you have all the answers. Now, God is not necessarily being condescending, but he's making a very important point. And that is sometimes that we are totally out of our depths. There seems to be some sort of nautical thing going on tonight, but we're totally out of our depth in life, and sometimes we know it. Where we throw our arms up and we say we have nowhere else to turn except to what we think is the sleeping Jesus in the stern of the boat and say... Jesus, save us. Jesus, save us. Now, the thing about it is, is that the disciples knew that Jesus could calm the wind. That's why they went to him. Look, we know that you can do something about it, so please do something about it. What they were afraid of, what they were afraid of was whether or not Jesus was actually going to follow through. We know that God has the power to stop the wind and the waves, but is he actually going to do it? Is he actually going to rescue me from the predicament that I am in? Now, in life, again, we've all been in those situations. But here the difference and what the disciples are struggling with is the difference between their feelings and reality. Feelings and not the reality of the situation because, again, it's scary, but the reality of who God is. Is this the God who has the power to calm the waves to, to still the storm, to make what was once tumultuous actually calm? Is he not only capable, but will he do it? So on the one hand, they're like, we know that he can do it, but the fear, the feeling is, maybe he won't. Maybe he won't. Now, uh, that is uh, me through and through, uh, but it's not just me. Uh, eons and eons ago during the Reformation, Martin Luther had to hide out because there was a bounty on his head and lots of people wanted him dead. And he uh, was in a castle and he was translating the New Testament into German. And even though he was in hiding, lots of people knew where he was. And uh, so while he was there, his good friend and great reformer Melanchthon wrote him lots of letters. And often in his letters he would say, Dear Luther, I just don't feel like God loves me very much. I don't feel like God is really working through me. I don't feel like this. I don't feel that. I don't. And Luther, for the most part just, part, just threw those letters away. But finally, it had it one day. I guess he got to a particularly difficult passage in John. And he wrote Melanchthon back what we know is a very famous uh, snippet from Luther. Melanchthon, go and sin boldly. Now, we all remember that part. <laughs> uh, but what we don't remember is the rest of the, his writings, which say... Melanchthon, go and sin boldly, for the cross is outside of you. What Luther was saying is that, Melanchthon, God's work in your life and God's rescuing you is not contingent upon the way that you feel. Because more often than not, you're going to feel like God is very far away. That God is asleep at the wheel. That God isn't going to work. But praise the Lord, God isn't dictated to by our feelings because the cross is outside of us, because it's an objective fact, as the Bible tells us, that God's arm is never too short to save. 
that He is a God who works and a God who saves and a God who does intervene in the situation. He's not, as some people believe, Thomas Jefferson, other deists, and a lot of people today that, you know, the world is just one of those places where God winds up, winds it up, and it just kind of goes on its own. But He just sort of sits back and watches, and every once in a while He'll get involved. But in fact, as we hear in Job, God is intimately involved in the affairs of the world. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at how God clothes them with splendor. And not even a sparrow falls from the sky without our Heavenly Father knowing about it. He even knows the number of hairs on our head. If He cares that much about flowers and sparrows, how much more does He care about us? Well, the disciples weren't there to get this Bible study. Uh, and yet, uh, they were all, uh, you know, there's a great axiom I once heard about teamwork, and that is none of us is as dumb as all of us. And uh, so uh, they're all working furiously. But I think about Job, too, and they're all thinking we're going under. And then Job and his friends, remember when he was going through all of this awful stuff, what were his friends saying? Job, you must have done something to really tick God off. Right? Job, whatever it is, you should repent of it. Because whatever you've done has deserved all of this stuff. Another friend said, you know what? Stuff just happens. It just happens and there's nothing you can do about it. And you, Job, you've got to roll with the punches. right? Tell somebody who's lost their wealth, who's lost their family, who's lost everything that is near and dear to them, except for a nagging wife who says, what to Job? Her advice is, Job, curse God and die. Just curse God and die. And let's just get it all over with. Because I'm tired of seeing you struggle with this. And, and so God, Job gets this audience with God and he finds out that God was actually intimately involved in even his sufferings. Whoa. Are you saying that, that God is in the midst of even the bad times of life? Well, he's there. He's absolutely there in the midst of it. One of the uh, great stories uh, from the church that I love to tell um, is the story of John Newton and William Cooper. Uh, you probably know them by their hymns that they wrote. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace and a couple others. And Well, he and William Cooper decided they were going to compile a hymnal for the church because uh, 18th century hymnals in England left a lot to be desired. And Newton was the rector of a church in Olney, England, which was in the north of England, sort of a working class area. And so they began work on what was called the Olney Hymnal. And uh, because of, you know, the Olney Hymnal, we have tunes like Amazing Grace. Um, there is a fountain filled with blood. Glorious things of thee are spoken. So this is a really pivotal uh, document or work in, uh, in church hymnody. And while they're working on it, William Cooper went crazy. Now, I don't mean like, I'm having a bad day. I'll talk, come into the office tomorrow. He was institutionalized. And then he would kind of bounce back, and then he would be institutionalized again. And finally, it got to the point where Newton threw up his hands, and he just didn't understand. God, where are you in the midst of this? Because I thought for sure that you were calling me to this, and how could God possibly be against this hymnal? You know, I... I feel like you've in, instilled in me, God, all these wonderful, bright ideas and all these wonderful hymns, and yet at every turn, I feel like there is a dead end, a brick wall. Well, it was in the midst, look at me, all technological. It was in the midst of this, one of these times when Cooper was in the insane asylum, that uh, John Newton uh, 
wrote this hymn. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. A good prayer, right? Stuff that we all pray. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answered my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all my fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Well, there's a worship song. You know, that song uh, doesn't speak of wonderful experiences and sort of the bright side of the road. Uh, it talks about real life where all of us have been and, and we ask God, where are you? But as Newt Martin Luther said, the cross is outside of us. You can only imagine the feeling of the disciples on that good Friday where they stood at the foot of the cross. Well, actually, they were all gone except for John and, and the women and stood and looked up at Jesus. They didn't say... This is great. I feel great. This is wonderful. They looked up and thought, really, is this it? They couldn't have brought, been brought more low. And yet, when it seemed like God was the most absent from the history of the world, He was what? More present than He had ever been. When we hated God more than we ever had in the history of the world by killing His Son, His response was what? To love us more than He ever had in the history of the world. God is not dictated to by our experiences or, or our feelings. And in fact, it's in those low times where God is actually more present than He's ever been. Many of you are familiar with the wonderful poem, Footprints. It's normally on every grandmother's kitchen wall hanging somewhere. And, um, and as a kid, I always grew up and I thought, this is kind of trite. Uh, you know, I don't really know what to think of it, but as I've gotten older, I really love that poem. And uh, the poem, uh, I'm not going to read it to you, uh, but the poem is that a guy looked back on his life, which is played out on a beach. And for most of his life, he sees two sets of footprints. Uh, but in the hardest part of his life, he sees only one set of footprints. And he looks to the Lord and says, Lord, see, I knew it. In those hardest times of my life, you left me all alone. And I knew it because that's how I felt. And the Lord said, no, my son, those were the times where I carried you. Those are my footprints. Now, a lot of people are offended by that. In fact, if you get online, you can see uh, an entire blog dedicated to the abolition of this poem. Uh, and I've heard all kinds of versions like, well, what God really ought to do is he ought to, you know, there ought to be rear end prints on the sand where he drops you. Or, you know, there ought to be heel marks where God has to drag you here and there and everywhere. But guess what? Our God's mercy, our God's property is what? Always to have mercy. Jesus doesn't wake up in the stern of the ship and say, 
Figure it out. You should have thought about launching the boat at a different, a different time. You know how these storms are. Well, I guess you all better learn how to swim real quick. Jesus gets up and says, peace be still. Even in their fear, even in their experience where they thought we may not get out of this, God is faithful and his arm is never too short to save. But oftentimes, um, you know, it's easy because our human hearts are fickle to wonder about God's faithfulness towards us. And um, I think about when I was a little boy and uh, my grandfather uh, had a large farm and uh, there were lots of trails through the woods with a horse where you could ride horses. And he would often take me for a walk. And as we set out, uh, he would always stick two fingers out like this. And I would grab hold and I was about three years old. And uh, we'd make it, uh, you know, maybe 100 yards. And, of course, there were roots and rocks. And, and I would bite it. I would just totally fall over and, you know. And finally, uh, my grandfather would, and this happened every time, my grandfather would look down at me with uh, no judgment but with a smile on his face and he'd say, you know what, this would be a whole lot easier if you let me hold your hand. You know, that's what God does for us. We don't have to hold on to him because he's holding on to us. So whether you are in a storm tonight, uh, maybe you're in smooth waters right now, uh, but I have a feeling there's something that all of us are dealing with. Uh, know that God's holding on to you. And that even though your heart doesn't feel it, um, know that the cross is outside of you. And rest in His mercy and His great love for us, sinners such as me. Amen.